Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us for this installment of our Bible study in the book of Jeremiah. Brian and I were scheduled to teach the college and adult class uh, this quarter, but due to the circumstances, we're providing these videos to hopefully give you a guide and a resource as you study um, from this very uh, powerful book, um, uh, the book of Jeremiah. We've already looked at, at chapters 1 through 10. Uh, Brian and I have been switching off in previous videos, and I encourage you to go back and watch the last few weeks if you haven't had a chance yet to get caught up. All of our videos, all of our sermons are at godsredeemed.org, so please uh, check it out there. Uh, for a brief review, um, just to kind of set the context of where we're at for our study tonight, Let's remember Jeremiah was a prophet who came from the Levitical city of Anathoth, uh, not far from Jerusalem. And while there's no direct proof, um, many believe that he is the son of Hilkiah the priest who found the law in the temple during the reign of Josiah that kind of led Josiah to attempt this great reform. However, it, he did the best he could, but the reform was superficial at best. If you remember, uh, Brian talked a little bit about that last week. He did his best to restore worship and get rid of the idols and the high places, but the hearts of the people didn't change. There wasn't true repentance, and it wasn't a true turning to God. Um, last week, if you remember, Brian uh, described how they would go to the temple and worship God uh, following Josiah's directions, but their hearts just weren't, weren't in it. Their hearts weren't changed, and the worship and the sacrifices that they offered were worthless and rejected by God. And so Jeremiah's job in the last few chapters was to stand at the temple and call this out. He, that, that was the, the sermons for the last three uh, few, few chapters. He called out the worshipers. He called out the priests conducting the worship. And he tried his best to help them change their ways before it was too late. Now tonight's study, we're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapters 11, 12, and 13. Um, and, and what we're going to be looking at in those chapters is, in chapter 11, think the word covenant. Uh, the covenant that God made with his people and the covenant that they broke. And we're going to learn about the penalties that came from them breaking it. Then in chapter 12, Jeremiah asks a very important question, why do the wicked prosper? And we're going to see God's response to that. And then in chapter 13, uh, we're going to see the symbolic sign performed by Jeremiah, and then some thoughts on the pride that uh, Judah had currently, and the humiliation um, and shame that they were about to undergo and, and about to suffer. So with, with that kind of just setting up our study for tonight, let's go ahead and jump into chapter 11 and, and take a look at, at what we have there. Um, if you remember in this chapter uh, through Jeremiah, God reminds the people of Judah about the covenant that he had, number one, promised to their forefathers, that he had entered into at Mount Sinai with the law, and that he had sent numerous prophets to persistently warn about the consequences of breaking over the years. He, he, he's been sending prophets warning about them breaking this covenant. In fact, over 800 years have passed between the time that God gave the law at Mount Sinai and now where Josiah is attempting to reform the nation in this kind of time period that Jeremiah is, is prophesying in. So they've had plenty of time for them to uh, have stepped up and turned back to God. And God uses this chapter, uh, chapter 11, to remind them of that covenant, remind them that he's warned them about um, what would happen if they forsook him and if they broke the covenant, and to inform them that they indeed have broken this covenant or are about to experience the consequences. So that, that's kind of what takes place here in chapter 11. 
And what Jeremiah does in the first 13 verses is actually go back and refer to some specific events in their history, uh, the history of, of, of his people, some important turning points in the life of this covenant between them. And in verses 3 and 4 specifically, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, and Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, in some of the things that he, he explains to them, and he gives them a brief history of the covenant that he commanded them. And I wanted to just read uh, verses 2 through 5 really quick um, to get us started. So chapter 11, starting in verse 2, Hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought, you, brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do according to all which I command you, so you shall be my people and I will be your God, in order to confirm the oath which I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Then I said, Amen, O Lord. So, Jeremiah is saying, you are cursed if you do not hear and do the things in this covenant. And I gave the Lord gave this covenant to your forefathers in Mount Sinai after bringing them out of Egypt. And this covenant confirms the promise that the Lord made to your forefathers before that, to Abraham in Genesis 12, to Isaac in Genesis 26, to Jacob in, in chapter 35 of Genesis. And what was the oath that was made to those forefathers? to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, the same land that the nation now occupies. And so we see that, that he is he's going back in history and telling them, look, I promised this to your forefathers. I confirmed it with this covenant, and I've fulfilled that part, and we still have this covenant that, that you're, you've now broken, that you're under. Then in verses 6 through 8, Jeremiah tells them that the Lord had warned his people that they needed to hear the words of his covenant and do them. Uh, again, he has been warning their forefathers, and he brought them up, uh, when he brought them up out of Egypt, he warned them. All the way to this day, he's warned them persistently through his prophets. He's given them every opportunity to listen to his voice, but instead of obedience or repentance, they respond with stubborn, evil hearts. Now, if you have kids in the preschool to middle school classes uh, where we're studying out of the Bible study guide for all ages curriculum, in the last week or so, they've been looking at the the end of uh, of Joshua's life and specifically looking at the final address from Joshua after they had conquered and divided the land. And it struck me going through that with the girls that how often they made altars or monuments or memorials to serve as witnesses for them and for their families to remember that they were to serve the Lord and not the gods uh, of the land. And even in Joshua chapter 24, towards the end of his final address to the people, we have the very familiar speech uh, from Joshua where he gives them a choice. And he says, if, if, it, if it is disagreeable for you to choose to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today who you will serve, whether the gods your, your father served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites where you are now living. But for me and my house we will serve the Lord. That's very familiar to us. And the people responded to that challenge by saying, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. And then at the very end of Joshua 24, it says that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who served, survived Joshua. And they knew all the deeds of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. 
Now think about that for just a second. That that is how long it lasted. Uh, them being uh, re reaffirmed, uh, reaffirming their their faithfulness to God, even despite the altars and and the stones that they set up as a witness, it lasted the end of Joshua's life and the elders who survived. Um, then you get into the period of the judges, not long after that, where they cycled in and out of God's favor, the United Kingdom, and now the divided kingdom. Now, some seven to eight hundred years later, all of that is gone. And Jeremiah is delivering this message to them in Jerusalem, now just a few short years before their destruction, giving them one last chance to change, warning them one more time. And God gave them the covenant to their forefathers. God warned them about the covenant to, that they need to be hearers and doers of it, even to this day. And then in verses 9 through 13, he tells them that they have broken the covenant. They refuse to hear his words. They've gone back after other gods. They've broken this covenant that, that he, he instituted and promised to their forefathers. And because they've broken that covenant, he will bring unescapable disaster to, to them. Uh, the curse that was talked about, the consequence for not heeding the words of the covenant is this unescapable disaster. And now there had always been a blessing or a punishment tied to this co covenant. If they followed the Lord, blessings would follow. If they turned from him, punishment, destruction, and disaster would, would follow. And the law was very clear that this great nation dwelling in this great land would be scattered and left desolate and wasted. Passages in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and we'll look at a couple of those in, in a little bit, spelled that out very clearly. They spelled out the what would happen if they were not to comply with, with this covenant. And God here is just fulfilling the result of the broken covenant with these punishments. Last week, Brian talked about the fact that the people of Jerusalem were very religious and were going to the temple to worship God, even though they were worshiping idols and had all sorts of other problems and, and how worthless that was to God. And now in verses 14 through 17 here of chapter 11, Jeremiah returns to that idea, the inadequacy and emptiness of their ritual worship. What right does Israel have to be in the Lord's house? They have no right. The sacrifices are no help to them in the condition they're in. The things that they're doing are, are doing nothing for them. Without repentance, without removing these idols from their hearts, without the spiritual circumcision that Jeremiah talked about a couple chapters earlier, it's not even helpful for Jeremiah to pray and cry out on their behalf. He's, he's told not to pray, not to cry out for them. God had planted a perfect seed, and we have this image of a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. And God expected good fruit and good oil produced from this tree. But he's getting nothing but bad fruit, a whole lot of Baal worship. And he's going to destroy the tree. And this kind of reminded me of what Jesus taught, uh, that you would know a person by the fruit that they bore. Um, you know, God planted a seed, and it bore bad fruit, and he cut off that branch. God has planted a seed in us, uh, his word, and it's up to us to listen to his voice and do his word. And then as we get to the last part of chapter 11, um, it's kind of it's particularly interesting to me, and, and many sections like this are, that really give us some insight into Jeremiah as a person and the things that he was going through. Kind of kind of gives some, some character to the narrative here about Jeremiah and what he was doing. And in verses 18 through 23, we find out that his life was being threatened for the things that he was preaching. There are those that want to kill him 
And not just anyone, but we find out that it's the, the, the people and the priests from his hometown of Anathoth. Um, now, we've talked about how Jeremiah was warned in his calling in chapter 1. We've talked about that, that he would have reason to be afraid, but don't be afraid because God would be with him. Well, Jeremiah has found out about plans devised by those in his hometown to destroy him, to get rid of his fruit, the message that he's teaching. They want to get rid of that. They wanted him gone. They wanted his message gone. They didn't want anyone to remember him. And so he cries out to God, turning over uh, to, to God for vengeance and justice. And you can just imagine how full of anger and fear he would have been. He's preaching these words God is giving him, and he's getting death threats because of it. It kind of reminds us again of Jesus warning his disciples uh, that they would be hated for following him. Uh, Jeremiah is being hated for uh, preaching what God has, has, has told him to. And so God reassures Jeremiah in the final few ver verses here that those men of Anathoth who seek to kill you, don't prophesy to them anymore. You're not going to die because of the things I'm telling you to say. Stay away from them. I'm going to punish them. And so he reassures them. He says, I'm about to bring sword, famine, and no one will escape. Now, something interesting about this last part of, of chapter 11 here, you may have noticed a couple familiar phrases. Um, in verse 19 in particular, I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, is what they were saying about him. These are similar to words that we read in Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering servant who was to come where it says he would be led like a lamb to slaughter and he would be cut off from the land of the living for the people's transgressions. There have been a lot of comparisons made between Jeremiah and Jesus and I've heard sermons on that topic and I've heard people talk about that and make those comparisons comparing the two individuals. And this section of verses contains some of those comparisons. Not only... Uh, not only verse 19 and the references to Isaiah 53, but remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 57. Uh, after visiting Nazareth, his hometown, uh, where he grew up, he was performing miracles and teaching, and they took offense at him. And Jesus responded, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. Neither Jesus' miracles nor Jeremiah's teachings were welcome in the town that they grew up in. And I thought that was an interesting comparison here and something to just think about. And it makes sense when you think about Jeremiah, where he's from and what he's been preaching, why he would be hated by his fellow priests from Anathoth. Remember what he'd been saying about those priests just a few chapters earlier in the temple. He'd been directly criticizing the things they were doing and the things they were not doing that they were supposed to do. He was directly attacking the people that he grew up with. And so we can see why he's being uh, why he's being harassed and receiving death threats. But also, it's just interesting to see that comparison between him and Jesus and the struggles they had teaching in their hometown. I thought that was kind of interesting. So moving on to chapter two, Jeremiah asks a question in this chapter, a question that many other righteous people have asked before, and they continue to ask: Why do the wicked prosper? Why has the wicked prospered? Why are, all those who why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? And this is one of those age-old questions, right? Job asked this question when pondering his own misfortunes, being one of the most righteous men on earth himself. David raised this question many times in the Psalms when he would be pouring his heart out to God. He would ask this. And even the prophet Habakkuk uh, struggled with this issue while he prophesied. To many who are righteous in their point of view, 
uh, in their point of view, there seems to be a disconnect in the justice that God promises. There seems to be a delay in God's judgment uh, while the wicked get to enjoy the pleasures of this life. You know, they're told they're going to be punished, but they're, they're at ease. They're, they're prospering. They're doing just fine. And don't we see that even today? You know, I know I've been frustrated by that at times. I see many of our brothers and sisters, and they may be struggling financially, or they may be they may have, have lost loved ones or dealing with sickness. And then you turn and look around at so many in this world who are truly wicked and evil, and, and even those similar to what Jeremiah describes, where they're they're saying they're they're religious, their their mouths are close to, to God and, and speaking the right things but their minds are far from it and the actions don't aren't there. That, that can seem unfair. But Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And yes, many who are wicked take those blessings and through evil means enjoy the pleasures of the earth and, and it seems like they're not, not going to be judged, not going to be punished. They're, they're living it up. But Jeremiah describes these wicked people is being planted by God, having him close to their lips but far from their minds. They may have been saying the right things, but in their actions and in their hearts and minds, they were nowhere near acting righteously. And, and, and Jeremiah even pleaded with God to compare them to, to himself and said, You know me, O Lord. You, you see me. You examine my heart's attitude toward you. But I'm receiving death threats while they, have been, you know, they're, they're, they haven't been punished yet. But what we're going to see in the following verses as, as God begins to respond to this question is that Jeremiah is being short-sighted and, and impatient. Um, and these people are going to be punished. It may not be according to the timing Jeremiah thinks it should, but it's going to happen. And like I, said, I mentioned earlier, Habakkuk dealt with this issue during his work. And he was told in chapter 2, verse 3 of Habakkuk, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. And Jeremiah and Habakkuk both had to tell people destruction was coming, judgment was about to happen, and they were, they were growing impatient. They were frustrated with the way the people were acting, and they wanted to see justice done immediately. But God handles things in his own way and in his own time. And Jeremiah was going to have to wait. One, one other thing that I, that I was thinking about, thinking about this question, why, why do the wicked prosper, is that even though the wicked seem to be prospering and they seem to be at ease and there seems to be no judgment coming their way, that doesn't excuse their actions. And we're going to see, God, God's going to say, they are going to be judged. And it doesn't give those who are righteous the liberty to do anything they want. Since judgment seems like it isn't going to come, well, I might as well do whatever I want, right? Micah 6 verse 8 tells us what God expects from men. And he, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humble with your God? The righteous have a responsibility to live faithfully, despite what others do. It doesn't matter what the evil seem to be doing, and whether they seem to be prospering or not. The righteous are to live by faith, completely trusting and humbly obeying God. So while it may seem unfair that the wicked prosper, that the evil haven't been judged yet, that isn't up to us to decide. We still have to uphold our, uh, our end of, of the covenant with God, right? We still have to obey God and be righteous. Now, Jeremiah asked this question, and the Lord responds in the next couple of verses, uh, verse 5 through 13 or so. And what does he say? He says, this isn't the worst it's going to get. 
If you're tired, if you've fallen down, if you're expecting this to end right now, Jeremiah, you're mistaken. How are you going to compete with horses if you've fallen down just trying to keep up with, with men? What are you going to do in the thicket of Jordan if you've already fallen down? Being a prophet of God isn't easy. And it's only going to get worse the longer you do this. You can't grow impatient, Jeremiah. You can't give up on these people yet. And we know looking ahead, Jeremiah is going to suffer a lot through the next several chapters as we progress through the book. He's going to receive many more threats. He's going to receive physical assaults, imprisonments, public humiliation. He's going to be dropped into a pit of mud up to his armpits and left to die. And in fact, verse 6 here, even his own family has dealt treacherously uh, with him and can't be trusted. But God is telling him, don't lose faith. Don't get frustrated. It, it, you know, it, it's going to get... It's going to get worse. And if you can't handle this, you're not going to be able to handle what's going to come. But then God spends the next several verses describing what he is going to do. And God's not excusing the sin. God isn't letting the wicked prosper or escape his judgment. In verse 7, in fact, he says he's forsaken, he's abandoned, and he's given them into their enemy's hands, which is quite the opposite of prospering, right? Notice the tense of the verbs here that, that God, God uses. God has already done these things. He's already forsaken. He's already abandoned them. He's already given them into the hand of their enemies. Jeremiah hasn't seen the physical result yet, and he's growing impatient, but God knows their hearts, and he's already given them into the hands of their enemies. So we see Israel turn against the Lord. And the Lord has removed his love, coming to hate them now. And despite all of the warnings and prophets he sent, no one is taking the warning seriously. Verse 11 says, no man lays it, uh, lays it to heart. There's been no true, true repentance, no circumcision of the heart, no, nothing substantial. There's no peace for anyone. Remember the priests and false prophets from a few chapters ago uh, who, who are preaching peace, peace. God's saying there is no peace for anyone. The attacks are going to come and they're not going to stop. God reassures Jeremiah, excuse me, that they may look like they're prospering and at ease now, but they're not going to have peace. And they're not even going to know what hit them, in fact. They're, they're expecting a great harvest. They've sown wheat. It's all in vain, though. Everything they've done, they're going to reap thorns to no profit. They're going to be shamed and humiliated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. God isn't just sitting aside, putting Jeremiah in danger and letting the wicked off the hook. He's fiercely angry, and his wrath is about to pour out on them. And so he's reassuring Jeremiah of this, that the wicked aren't prospering. They're going to receive their judgment. Then God ends chapter 12 with a message for the wicked surrounding nations, nations like Syria, Moab, Ammon, and others that are going to be specifically addressed later in the book. But he said he's going to judge all nations. He's going to uproot them from the land, and then he's going to restore the nations through his compassion. This is one of the bigger themes that we see throughout the prophets, this idea that God is going to bring judgment, smite the wicked, desolation, destruction, but he's going to have compassion. And those who truly repent, those who swear by his name, confess him as the one true God, they will be healed. They will be restored. They will be scattered. They'll be gathered up and restored. And you may recognize this as a reference to the messianic blessing to come and the restoration that would come to the repentant righteous remnant. And so, so he... he he ends by saying they're going to suffer. The wicked aren't going to prosper forever. They're going to suffer. I'm going to judge all the nations, but through compassion, they, the righteous will be restored. Now, 
is we move into the last chapter, chapter 13, we're going to see a symbolic action here, a symbolic sign, and the sign of the worthless waistband here in the first 11 verses. And similar to what other prophets have been called to do, Jeremiah is called to do a pretty radical, dramatic action to, um, to symbolize God's message. You know, we have examples like Hosea's marriage to Gomer and the naming of his children. I mean, that overtook his entire life as a symbol. Isaiah was instructed to walk naked and barefoot for three years. Ezekiel had several of these types of, of tasks, including having to act out a siege on a clay tablet on the ground. Um, God used symbols and actions like this as just another attempt at grabbing the attention of his people. No one can say God didn't try every single method possible to reach and turn their hearts. These actions may seem strange, they, they may seem dramatic, and hopefully they'll cause people to open their eyes and listen to the prophet's message. In the case of Jeremiah here, in chapter 13, he was instructed to purchase a linen waistband, something like an apron or a sash, and to put it around his waist without washing or softening at all with water. He was then instructed after some time uh, to uh, some time of wearing it to go to the Euphrates River and hide the waistband in a rock there. Again, after a few days, he was told to go back and retrieve it from that rock. And when he does that, he discovers that the waistband was completely ruined and worthless. Now, this was no small act on Jeremiah's part. The Euphrates River, uh, chosen symbolically due to its location near Babylon, so that's going to have something to do with this, was over 300 miles away. And so Jeremiah, Jeremiah had to make two trips to this rock on the Euphrates to complete this sign from the Lord. But Jeremiah does it. He, through faith, he was obedient in this task, this, this seemingly crazy request. Jeremiah was all in. He, he did it. Now, what does it all mean? God revealed it to Jeremiah in the next several verses, uh, verses 8 through 11. God had made both Israel and Judah cling to him, just like the waistband did to Jeremiah. He set things up in a way that they would need him and be his people. They were supposed to be a holy people, different than others, set apart. He expected them to praise and glorify him, but they didn't listen. They were ruined and worthless, and we've seen that, that type of phrase used, used in previous chapters. Instead, they were wicked. They refused to listen to his words, walked in the stubbornness of their hearts, and they've gone after other gods to serve and bow down to. That's the opposite of clinging to God. And because of their worthlessness, he was going to destroy their pride. This was again a reference to Leviticus 26, which I, I told you we, we would reference a, a little bit, and some of the penalties of disobedience and breaking of the covenant. In Leviticus chapter 26, the Lord said that he would break down your pride of power. God hadn't forgotten his covenant. He was about to bring the penalties that he put in place 800 years ago to fruition on the nation of Judah because they'd broken the covenant, and he's, he's upholding that. Verses 12 through 14, because of this, because of their worthless state, because of their ruined state, and because they've broken this covenant, Jeremiah is supposed to deliver a message to the people in verses 12 through 14. And he's supposed to say, every jug is to be filled with wine. Some scholars believe this might have been another of the peace and prosperity teachings that the false prophets were, were spreading, where they would say, peace, peace. They might be trying to falsely assure people, saying every jug is to be filled with wine. Hey, don't worry. And the reason they think that is because the people are very familiar with this idea. And they respond, of course, every jug is to be filled with wine. Of course we know that. 
whether or not that that's the case or not, I, I don't know. But the point is, Jeremiah has a different slant on this phrase. No, of course every jug is not to be filled with wine. The Lord is about to fill all inhabitants, the king, the priest, the prophets, everyone with drunkenness. God is about to make every single person feel the effects of his judgment. What are the effects of drunkenness? Think about it. Confusion, impaired thought, unable to think clearly or make good judgments. The judgment of God is actually described as drunkenness several times in the Bible. Isaiah 51 describes Jerusalem being passed out of sleep, having drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. Psalm 60, David acknowledges receiving the judgment of God when he says, You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. Jerusalem is about to drink the wine of God's wrath and become drunk, dashing against one another. God's not going to show any pity or compassion on them. Now, the rest of this chapter deals with the pride Judah had just before it was taken into captivity and the humiliation and shame that they would be experiencing. So if we look at the next section here, verses 15 through 19, we're going to see that pride is a major problem with the people of Jerusalem and Judah. They were told to humble themselves and listen to the word of the Lord. It's their pride that is keeping them from listening and doing what God has commanded. They think they don't need God. They are content with their images made of wood. The Proverbs talk a lot about pride. Solomon was a very wise king, and he knew the dangers pride would bring. Perhaps he was thinking ahead to what Judah and Jerusalem was going to be dealing with. Uh, you know, Judah had a lot of things to be prideful for. Um, in their mind, they were God's chosen people. They had the temple, Brian mentioned last week. That was a source of pride for them. They were wealthy. They had fertile land, many years of peace. They, they were self-sustaining. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18, verse 12, Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Do you think Solomon sent something in the people he ruled, the potential they had to completely turn from God and turn inwardly prideful? James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And that is pretty much what Jeremiah is telling the people of Judah. Listen, don't be prideful. Give glory to God before he brings darkness. In verse 17, we see another glimpse into Jeremiah's emotional state. If they don't listen to God's word, Jeremiah will sob. He's going to bitterly weep because it's going to be too late for the flock of the Lord. Again, we see Jeremiah here having a deep love for God, a deep love for God's people and his flock, and he is distraught over the lack of action and their inward pride. And he even calls in the next few verses to the royal family to humble themselves. And there's no clear indication which royal family this refers to as far as in, in the timing of, of things. Um, some, some think that because the queen mother is referenced here, it may indicate this is directed to Jehoiachin and his mother Nehushta, uh, 2 Kings chapter 24, who only reigned three months and was evil. But there's really no other indication uh, of who it might be. Regardless, he's calling to the royal, the leaders of the nation. He's calling on them to humble themselves before it's too late and the whole nation is wholly carried into exile. And then the last few verses of, the, uh, of this chapter describe what's going to happen because of their pride if they don't humble this, themselves. It says they are going to be shamed and humiliated. Uh, verse 22 says, When they ask, Why have these things happened to me? It's because of the magnitude of your iniquity. 
Your skirt has been removed. Your heels have been exposed. Your overwhelming amount of sin has caused you to go from strong and wealthy to naked and weak, exposed for all to see, completely humiliated. Jeremiah urges them to act while they still can because they are marked permanently, uh, b before they are marked permanently, like a leopard spots or an Ethiopian skin, they, they have a chance before it's permanent. They, they will be scattered because they have forgotten the Lord and trusted in falsehood. Uh, remember, the, uh, again, a reference to the punishment for breaking the covenant warned to the forefathers that they will be scattered abroad. Again, complete humi humiliation uh, is described here, having their skirts stripped off over your face. All, of, all their shame may be seen. It's really a sad ending to a great once great nation, uh, great people of God. And at the very end of this chapter, the question is asked, how long will you remain unclean? And the answer to that question is found in Messiah's coming. They're going to be unclean until God's plan is, comes to fruition. Uh, but for now, Jeremiah mourns the fate of his country with this woe at the end of chapter 13. So that's our lesson for, for this week. I hope it's been profitable for you. I hope it helps you in your study. Um, uh, Brian will be, uh, Lord willing, leading our study next week. I believe it'll be Jeremiah chapter 14 through 17. So uh, if you'd like to go ahead and read ahead on that, I encourage you to join in and watch then. But until then, stay safe and take care. Thanks.